Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at www.indigopodcast.com. Today, we're focusing on flourishing in public service, and we're going to cover, one, why is public service worth pursuing as a career? What shapes and form might public service look like? And advice for those of any age or stage looking to get into public service, which should be all of you. That's right. That's right. These are such great topics, and we're really passionate about these topics. And you know what's great is it's not just you and me talking about this today. So to help us immensely in this effort, we have the one and only Mike Dovilla with us today. Say hi, Mike. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Yes, um, this Mike. is so awesome. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know, I don't know how we landed Mike as a guest, but this is so great. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about Mike. So, Mike Dovilla is the inaugural president and executive director of the USS Cleveland Legacy Foundation, the founder and president of the leadership development firm, the Grindstone Institute, a commander in the U.S. Navy Reserve, and a former member of the Ohio House of Representatives. His extensive public service also includes serving as an advisor to U.S. Senator George Voinovich and as a president. Presidential Management Fellow at the U.S. Department of State. He also served as the Chief of Staff of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, and he's currently a member of the Class of 2020 in the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program. So there's all of this, but there's also so much more, and we'll be weaving those different areas of Mike's expertise and experience into our conversation today. So Mike, again, we are just so honored to have you. Welcome to the Indigo Podcast. Appreciate <laughs> the opportunity. Awesome. So, you know, I think what we'd like to start with, Mike, is you know, you've had so much experience in public service as an elected official, as an appointee, in very in, as a, a GS employee, as a military officer, uh, and it, it's really a, a wonderful perspective I think that you bring to this idea of public service. Uh, and we'd like to kind of talk about why is public service worth pursuing as a career and in so doing, you know, tell us a little bit more about your background and so forth. Sure. Well, I'm from uh, from Cleveland, Ohio, originally and uh, from a really young age and for reasons that I've never been able to quite put my finger on exactly had an interest in uh, opportunities for service of one kind or another, um, both military and in the political realm. And so over the years had uh, as you noted, several different opportunities to step into both of those areas and, and serve. And I guess initially my, my first foray into it was um, coming down here to, to D.C. for graduate school, which is where I happen to be again right now on an active duty assignment with the Navy. And um, right out of there, entered the Department of State through a really cool program that at the time was called Presidential Management Intern Program, PMI, which President Carter started back in the 1970s. And had the opportunity to start at the Department of State. And one of the cool features of the program is being able to move around to different um, agencies or locations in government and sort of test the waters during this two-year period of time where you move from GS9 to 11 to 12. So I started at State, ended up over at the Pentagon for a while on joint staff, back to State, up to the Hill. And that's how I um, initially came to work with Senator Voinovich, took a job with him. So I actually left the PMI program two months before the end, um, 
was informed I would not graduate from the program uh, <laughs> two months early, and that was the end of that. I've never <laughs> a certificate of completion from the program. <laughs> no PM, which is an agency I ended up working for twice later. Um, but it, it was a great opportunity to just to move along to a, a professional staff position on the Hill with um, with Senator Voinovich on the Governmental Affairs Committee. And I was working at the time on um, sort of performance and results issues under something called the, the Government Performance and Results Act, GIPRA, um, which is a pretty narrow area of focus for, for public service, uh, government management nerds like me. And uh, through that, started working on human resource issues, which um, is probably an even narrower, nerdier area of, uh, of public management. So <laughs> That's why you're on our show. Yeah, yeah. So you can be care. narrow and nerdy. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so that that was one of the senator's um, areas of interest as well. Much to the dismay, I might add, of the chief of staff at the time, who used to refer to our work as the time suck, because uh, <laughs> he really help the boss raise an idea <laughs> for the next campaign that way or tell people in Ohio what we were doing. But um, it was interesting to us, and we thought a way to improve um, the government landscape. And so we worked on the first civil service reforms. This was around 2001, 2003, the first reform since 1978. Uh, so in a quarter century at that point. And through that, I ended up working in the Bush administration at OPM for the first time. Um in the director's office, leading this government-wide um, council for chief human capital officers. The first time we created C-suite HR people in, in federal agencies. And that was sort of my entry into the process before I came back home to Ohio the first time. I'll pause there because there's, there's yeah. more later, but that's kind of the first chapter of, uh, of how I got into this business. So what, what's a day-to-day for a staffer? What was your day-to-day um, working you know, what did it look like? You wake up, you probably have a crappy commute, right? Because staffers don't make a bajillion dollars, right? Yeah, it was, uh, I was living at the time just about where I am now here in Pentagon City. And so it was just across the bridge to the hills. It wasn't bad at the time until I decided to make the the plunge and purchase my first home, which was down um, in Fairfax County near Mount Vernon. And that turned into then like an hour commute rather than 20 minutes. <laughs> because you got to live far away to afford it. That's right. So, <laughs> the world. Homeowner and mortgage and all that. Um, but no, it, it was um, to this day, even with all the different experiences in public service and the rest of my career that I've had, that is probably my favorite job hmm. because no day was the same. Um, and, the work that we were doing, so we were assigned to the, what was then called the Governmental Affairs Committee. It's now called Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. So it went from GAC to his GAC. Everything's an acronym. <laughs> and um, pretty much the, the work that we did was whatever was coming down the track in terms of the news or whatever the boss was interested in. So um, our specific niche area, we were on the Oversight of Government Management Subcommittee, OGM. And OGM had oversight, uh, as one might expect from that title, of the entire government. And so Senator Voinovich was interested in HR, but we had other issues that would come through. And actually, the majority flipped three times during the three years that I was on, um, on staff there. And so we went from food safety to the nursing shortage to 
the HR crisis in government to creating the Homeland Security Department after 9-11. I was on the Hill when this all happened. So all of that moved through our committee. And talk about an opportunity just for getting smart on an issue quickly, because the boss has to go on the dais in two days and sound intelligent and ask a bunch of questions on an issue he might not know a whole lot about. Well, that's your job as the staffer to get him ready, put the briefing book together, come up with some really compelling questions on the issue, and get to the nub of whatever it was that that uh, we were all quickly getting smart on. Yeah, right. So wow. you know, really need experience. For people out there that complain, you know, I have three different bosses, or or my boss keeps changing priorities. Wait until you go up on the hill where it's like, well, okay, we had the majority, and I, I guess we might be able to get, oh, look, an election just happened. Now we're shifting. And guess what? This television thing happened that we got to respond to. I mean, it's it's a way more fluid environment than yeah. any corporate job that you could have. Oh, it absolutely is. It's, um, it's constantly changing, but that's what makes it interesting. And I think it's why young people thrive in, um, in those kind of opportunities. Um, the other reason is they don't pay you very well. So only young people can tend to work there because of the aforementioned mortgage. Um, but some professional staff on the committees do stick around for a while longer, which is great because that, that way you do get institutional knowledge, especially on some of the, the nerdier issues like public service. We were always paired up with um, Senator Akaka from Hawaii. And so it didn't matter um, really which member, my boss or Akaka was in the chair. We knew that we were working human resource issues with really talented, interested professionals who'd been on committee staff for a while. They cared about it. They wanted to improve um, the, the tenor and the nature of public service and uh, how we manage and reward and recognize our workforce. So there was consistency on that, um, which was nice as sort of an underlying base note beneath all the other bubbling and moving that was going on with, with 9-11. Um, because that, I mean, that was just a, a fascinating time to be there, um, literally on that morning in the Capitol, um, and then working our way through various proposals that were coming through on how do we respond to this as a government? Do we reorganize? Can we handle things um, in the old way? And obviously, we ultimately came around to creating that brand new department, which was the first creation of a cabinet level department in the federal government since the Veterans Administration was elevated to the Department of Veterans Affairs in the early 1990s. Wow. Wow. Were you in the Capitol on 9-11? I was. Man, that was scary. Yeah. It was um, an extraordinary morning in in that I normally would not have found myself in the Capitol. So we'll just start there. I mean, I would have been in my office having the second cup of coffee and probably reading through the news and getting ready for whatever the, the craziness of the day was going to present. It was a Tuesday morning. Yep. Um, as y'all might remember, just a beautiful day here in the nation's capital. Um, but we were over there on, uh, there's sort of these conference rooms below the, the west front under the, the stairs where the presidential inaugurations take place. And we were there for a breakfast meeting with what, what at the time was a brand new nonprofit called the Partnership for Public Service. Um, they had just stood up a few months earlier and were doing this launch breakfast. and the uh, keynoter for the breakfast was former Congressman Dan Burton from Indiana, who mm-hmm. was the chair of the Government Reform Committee, our sister committee on the House side. And uh, Congressman Burton was never late for anything. And he arrived, and it was probably 15 or 20 minutes after 
the start time for the breakfast. And it was from his mouth that all of the attendees heard the news about what had happened in New York. And by that point, both towers had been struck. And so we sort of just moved through the rest of the breakfast in a really perfunctory way. Um, nobody was much focused at that point on, on public personnel management, as important as, as it is and as interested as that particular audience was. So I was with my staff director, who is about two years ahead of me in the Navy Reserve Intelligence Program. He may have still been wearing Ensign or, or maybe Lieutenant JG at the time. And so we, we left the room, and I remember coming out into the hallway, and there was an adjacent room across the way with a TV on one of those big carts. And the news was turned on, but the image that was on the TV was the Pentagon on fire. Wow. We heard nothing about. Yeah, because it had all that hay bell insulation problem. I mean, it's a huge problem to extinguish the fires there in the Pentagon. Yeah, but we hadn't heard anything about that that additional incident occurring that morning. Wow. We were only aware of the two in New York. And I just remember the, the two of us looked at one another, and he's already, you know, in uniform as a reserve officer at that point. And he's like, well, this means war. And we start moving pretty quickly through the passageways to get up and out of the building and, and over to, we work in Hart at the time, which is the newest of the three Senate buildings. And um, we got upstairs to the Senate side. And by that point, there are Capitol Police who are brandishing weapons that none of us had ever seen before, um, which were considerably larger than the normal <laughs> sidearms that Right. And we're like, wow, things changed really quickly here. And they are rushing us out of the building. And so we, we walked really quickly over to back over to our building and we went right to the boss's office, which was on the third floor. Um, we were upstairs. Our committee offices were three floors up from there. And so we went right to the boss's office and the entire staff was sort of gathering there from all of, I think he was on three committees at the time and chaired two different subcommittees. So everyone was coming from their different spaces to the personal office. And, um, and not long after that, we were all told we needed to evacuate the entire complex. So I remember standing outside in the lot in the parking lot between Hart and the Monocle, this great old restaurant. And everyone's just sort of looking at each other saying, okay, what do we do now? Yeah. No, one, no one knew what to do at that point. Um, the cell phone service was mainly down. I think I had reached a couple of people. Couldn't reach my girlfriend at the time who um, was working in DOD at the Pentagon mm. and um, could not get across the 14th Street Bridge to get home. So it took me a couple of hours. I had to go all the way down to the bottom of the Beltway and then cross the Wilson Bridge and back up Route 1. I got as far north as Potomac Yard, which is maybe a mile from here. And walk the rest of the way home. It was just, and, and, you know, finally connected with my girlfriend about five hours later, I think. Yeah. Wow. So it was a day, um, obviously for the nation, but that was my personal experience with it. And, um, uh, and then obviously we, we would learn later that the, the fourth plane, um, was very likely targeting the Capitol building itself. So, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, um, quite an experience obviously and those of us who are uh you know not now i guess old enough uh since it has now been um you know almost 19 years um 
certainly remember, you know, where we were and so forth. And, you know, part of part of that feeling and even connecting with back to this idea of public service, I think, is this recognition that you're part of something much bigger than yourself. And um, I just wonder maybe if you could speak a little bit to that and how that uh, kind of ties into this whole idea of public service and and how it can be a worthwhile endeavor from that standpoint as a career, as a job. Yeah, and I think that's really the main reason that a lot of folks get into the business. Public service, and especially the political element of it, gets such a negative reaction from so many people nowadays. And it's no wonder, given the partisan split that we see in the country today. And um, what split that, is that? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> right. I, I hadn't noticed I hadn't anything. What? Wait, what? <laughs> um, there, there's there's a little partisanship that's going on in the country right now. <laughs> and, uh, okay, I need to read into that. Really run into some bad actors in the business who do things that they probably shouldn't do while they're, they're in public office. Um, yeah. Just had an experience with that once again in our state of Ohio with our um, currently the, well, in now immediate past leadership in the House of Representatives. And so people see that and they think, well, that's that's public service. But that's not, people don't enter the business with the intention of, of engaging in malfeasance or doing the wrong thing or bilking the public out of money. That's not the not the general reason people have in mind. No, we <laughs> marinate that corruption over a period of years. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you know, people want to do good. They want a chance to serve and, and they want a chance to get back to their community or get back to their state or their country. And those are the noble reasons for entering public service. And I like to remind people that that public service is a noble profession. And so, you know, I, I was talking earlier a little bit about the, the young people who serve in those positions on the Hill. Why do they do that? Or you know, why do they come work for people like me and Columbus for $30,000 a year as a legislative aide. I mean, it's certainly not for the remuneration that comes from it in terms of the money. Right. It's, it's something else that, that, that we get from it. And it's the opportunity to serve a cause larger than self to move forward, perhaps a public policy issue or two that we have a, a passion or an interest in and to make a difference for, for people around us. And that's the way that this system works. It's, I think it was Ben Franklin who said this is the, the worst form of government there is except for all the others that have been tried. So it's messy. It can be, as we've seen, especially now we're, we're less than 100 days out from another national general election. It can be ugly and it can be partisan. Um, but ultimately, what underlies all that is something that's beautiful and noble and good um, if we're engaged in it for the right reasons. Yeah, because you were working on HR issues, right? And even people say, well, we should have a big government. We should have a small government. I don't hear anybody except like the, you know, I don't know. I went to a libertarian group once and I was like, okay, we're going to talk about limited government. And there was a bunch of guys like, yeah, when are we going to talk about the weed? I'm like, <laughs> okay, okay. I hear you about the weed. Okay. But then we're going to restructure thing. We're going to bring self-organization. Yeah, man, we're here for the weed. And I was like, oh, shoot. But anyway, besides the weed wackos, which, you know, <laughs> that's fine, too, if you're one of those. <laughs> Nobody's saying we should have absolutely no government. I mean, you can't even have a representative from your state if you don't have some government. 
So within that is the idea of like, well, we got to now go recruit and retain some people to hopefully build some institutional knowledge over a, you know, 15, 20, 30 year career, which means you got to have HR. Like, well, if I'm a woman and want to work for the uh, for the government, do I get maternity leave? Uh, I don't know. We're going to have to have an HR person write up a policy. And this is like not the and now I'm going to talk about our cybersecurity policy or address, you know, Twitter on the Hill. I mean, yes, that's kind of sexy stuff to do. But you don't even get to do the sexy stuff if you can't recruit, retain, and have some kind of HR function. Now, how many how many yeah. people go to Washington to march and like I'm here for HR policy? <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. Well, I just want to break it down for our listeners a little bit. You know, if you haven't been in these realms, if you haven't worked in DC, if you haven't been around the the federal government much, um, you may not realize that there are many, many, many. Uh, civilians that work on you know a day-to-day basis doing government jobs, right? And these are very important jobs. I've had the pleasure of working alongside a lot of these people, very smart people, very capable people, um, doing great work. And you know, the, there so there's you know people who are elected officials, obviously. There are people who are maybe in the military, um, but then there's also this huge cadre of folks who, you know, as Chris was alluding to, need that HR structure and uh, leadership development, all those types of activities to really make a government work well. And uh, so, it, you know, just to underscore the, the importance of that potentially wonky and narrow, narrowly focused area, it's very important. Well, and, and who wants a government run by idiots, right? So you, you want top talent in those positions. Right. <laughs> and everybody immediately goes to the cynical place. I live in the cynical place, so I don't even have to go anywhere to get there. But but you don't want a government run by idiots. You, you don't want to have crappy HR policy. You don't want to have like bad email policy. I mean, look at all the emails stuff that goes on. Well, you know, is, is there email and work from home device situation set up for modern security issues? I mean, anybody that's dealt with the technology changeover in any big corporation you've got these legacy systems that are just slow and garbage and anyway all the all of that kind of stuff goes on but but it's funny because they want the top talent for like the no money price and it just doesn't work that way right and so there's these crappy things about public service so mike tell us what stinks about public service (laughs) (laughs) there's a lot to uh (laughs) <laughs> to unpack there, let, let, I want to step back for a minute and just look at the early days of the Republic before we had a professional merit-based civil service, because that's where we began. Mm. And it was really um, around the 1880s that we finally got to a point where we moved from just a, a raw, pure patronage system based on who you know and uh, who you voted for in the presidential election over to the system that we have today um, for all of the so wait a minute it, it was total spoils and cronyism in the early days right absolutely I'm, I'm reading this great book right now on um, the the 13-day journey of president-elect Lincoln from Springfield Illinois to Washington DC and we just want to disabuse people who think it's bad now. <laughs> it was really it was flipping worse. bad. I mean, they gloss over, you know, 
Washington on his boat and attacks in the night. And then all of a sudden freedom and we're a magic nation. No, these guys were the same kind of corrupt jack wagons that you see today. <laughs> we're the same monkeys in shoes here with, with fewer formal structure and rules to keep them in check. Right? Yeah, there's no, no uh, journalism function that was policing their governance. <laughs> the, the, the governance probably wasn't even much of a word back then. <laughs> Well, even on the media side as well, um, we talked today about uh, fake news and how oh, it's rampant back then. Journalism. I mean, you know, the, the days of yellow journalism around the Spanish American War. Never mind what it was all the way back at the beginning of the Republic. I mean, the election in, in eighteen hundred between uh, Adams and Jefferson. I mean, the newspapers were just out for whoever their candidate was. Yep. In unabashed ways. I mean, nothing even resembled fact or news. So now, there was no fair and balanced in anybody's byline. No, <laughs> not, not at all. But um, on the civil service side, it took the murder of President Garfield, our our second president, to meet that fate in office after Lincoln, to serve as the impetus for the Pendleton Act and the creation of a modern day merit based civil service. And so that was in the 1880s. And then, as, as I mentioned earlier, OPM grew out of what was the Civil Service Commission, which was created by the Pendleton Act. And that was in 1978. So um, since 78, we've had this central human resource agency for government that has been designed to oversee merit principles. So to make sure that it's a, a merit-based system, not one based on spoils and patronage and who you know, but based on what you know based on your, your KSAs, right? Your, your knowledge, skills, and abilities, those types of things. And today we still oversee a government of about 2 million civil servants to Ben's point about the, what is the size of this organization outside of people who wear uniform, people who are elected, people serving political roles as I have over the years. I mean, that's a few thousand people only. Right. And so you think about how, challenging it is for a new administration coming in to, to sheer, steer the ship of state to move it from one direction or another with only a few thousand people in a, um, a large bureaucracy of two million. And yet those are the people with the subject matter expertise that are providing all the stability, regardless of who the president is and who the secretary of whatever department happens to be. Those are the people who are serving the public and moving an issue forward. Yeah. So like it, when I took company command, it was like 200 people I had. Right. But if I if I drained my swamp, if I fired all my full timers, let's say I could magically do that. Then I show up. I'm like, wait, who's going to give me the keys to the armory? Who has the code <laughs> to the, the <laughs> safe? They're like, what? wait, where do we keep our binders that have our policies in them? Like you just yeah. you just can't do it. There's people that know where where things are, the good and the bad. That's right. Well, and so you, you asked Chris, what are some of the, what stinks about this line of work? And I guess part of it is how, how bureaucratic it can tend to be, right? We were laden in a lot of rules that um, have been put in place often because of one bad actor that then everybody has to do. So, right, like we just went through all of our annual refresher training uh, for a bunch of different things here at the Pentagon. The that guy policies. Yeah. Why, why yeah. can't we do that? Well, there was that guy. <laughs> but now, you know, all of us have to have to do it. So, you know, it can be stifling um, with all the rules and regulations and training and 
uh, and different requirements that are in place. But um, we, we work our way through that, and ultimately, it's designed to protect um, the employee and the taxpayer, the the we the people part of it that underlies all of this um, from bad actors. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. So, you know, obviously we didn't cover everything about your background. We'll get into some more of that, I think, as we we move forward here. But I'd love to just give our listeners a little bit of a an overview of you know, what is the landscape of public service? What are the different types of things that you can do uh, in the service of our government? Because, you know, for example, I remember talking to one young person and suggesting based upon her background and credentials and education, I said, you know, you'd be a great fit for the government. And, and, her immediate reaction was like, I don't want to be in the army. And I was like, no, that's not what I'm talking about at all. Right. There's all kinds of other opportunities. So um, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So there, I mean, obviously the military is, is one of them and, you know, perhaps it's the one that's the most in, in front of the public because of um, television ads during the Super Bowl or whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> there are, there are other opportunities for service as well. And I guess probably the, the second one that comes to mind is, well, you, you run for office or maybe you work for someone like that. And that's, um, those are the, the, who, you know, patronage type positions that, that we talked about. So that's a second category. And then the third are, you know, the civil servants that we've been talking a little bit about here. And, and those are really the rank and file members of government who are, are running the large enterprise, whether at the state or federal level or at the local level. For that matter, and so there are lots of ways to uh, to enter the business and to make a contribution. Um, it's not just putting on a uniform or or putting your name on a ballot. Yeah, yeah. So you know you uh, can just apply for a job, right? You can actually do that. Go to usajobs.gov and uh, apply for one. There are all, ki- all kinds of positions out there. Um, now you were one of those elected officials for a number of years. What was that like? So that was the thing, I guess, I, along with the military, that from a young age, without explanation, I always wanted to do. And I finally got my wish, for better or for worse, Yeah, <laughs> about 10 years ago. Um, yeah, 10 years ago at this time, we were at the same point. We were within the last 100 days of a general election, and uh, and I'd been nominated for the Ohio House of Representatives and ended up serving three terms there, was the whip my last term. Um, one of the vote counters for the majority, which was fun. Um, but it, it was a terrific experience. Um, I'm a, a policy nerd as I wear on my sleeve. I've probably mentioned it a couple times here already. As, That's as well what we as love about you. Other form. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it fed an opportunity for me to, to do some, what I hope was meaningful work on a bunch of different policy areas that I had an interest in. Um, but I think the more important thing was being able to participate in this experiment in self-government that, that we're all engaged in as Americans, um, to be able to take an idea that came from a constituent at the front door while knocking on a door or in receipt of a phone call or an email in the official office, and to then translate that into whatever the solution happened to be. So, right. you know, maybe it's a business owner who's having trouble navigating um, an issue with a state agency or it's a constituent who has an idea for a piece of legislation that they'd really like to see put into state law Um, or even a recognition for someone in the district who did something noteworthy. I I used to love doing um, 
accommodations for uh, Boy Scouts who attain the rank of Eagle, for example. Awesome. So all of those, those are just some different flavors of, of opportunities that one has in public office to represent the public and um, to make a difference for your constituents and hopefully to also legislate, since we're talking about legislative positions here, um, to improve state law and make things a little bit better for people. Yeah. So we were talking about this right before we hit the record button. This idea of, you know, we don't want to disabuse anybody that we have some rose-tinted glasses about what government service looks like. Ben, Mike, and I all talked about, gosh, just horrible, nightmarish stuff that we've seen. But, you know, and the dystopian novels are like the hit because everybody feels powerless, right? They see stuff going on. They don't like it. They don't know what lever they can do. And if you don't want this country to be the dystopian novel that you read about with the other young adults, then you got to get in the game. Get in the game. Go go down. Get involved in your local school board. It doesn't matter where. You got to be literally the change you want to see in the world. Because who else is going to do it? Are you going to clicktivism as a clicking like or finding somebody wrong on your Facebook feed going to change this nation? No, it's just... You're just spewing venom and annoying everybody. <laughs> I miss Facebook when it was cat videos and pictures of your kids at the pool barbecue. <laughs> yeah, those are good old days. <laughs> it's about engagement in the community at, at whatever level. And um, one of the things that I've been trying to translate lately is all these various experiences that I've had in um, civil service, elected government, military service into. Um, helping to train up the next generation of young people in the country for their own type of service, whatever it happens to be. So Ben noted that I've I founded a new organization about a year and a half ago called the Grindstone Institute. I'm from Berea, Ohio, which is the, the 19th century grindstone capital of the world. These are giant um, stones that used to be used to uh, sharpen tools. So we've used this as our little metaphor for sharpening people, sharpening leaders. And um, so it's my homage to my hometown. But the, the point of the organization is to offer leadership development training um, in, a, in a general sense for people. But specifically, the area where we're really trying to get into now is, um, is citizenship and civility training for young people. Mm, and we've, we're establishing, I'm a, a glutton for punishment, so I'm a doctoral student now as well, along with everything else that's going on. And I'm, I'm working on um, some coursework that will eventually lead to a dissertation on citizenship education, which is a whole section of the literature that um, is related to how we train up young people in in this country as well as internationally for engagement in representative republics or democracies like we have. And so we're we're structuring a new program that's called the Emerging Servant Leaders Program, and it's this sort of six module program that that is going to work high school students through their paces on um, different elements of citizenship and civility and eventually lead to a, a one day capstone experience in the state capitol in Columbus, where half the day is spent in a model legislative session where the participants are engaging in civil civic dialogue with one another over a policy issue of their choice and the other half is spent at the national museum 
of Veterans, which is a fairly new museum in Columbus. We're going to pair students up with a veteran from their community to go on this one-day experience at the end. So there's intergenerational learning taking place as well. Awesome. And awesome. all of it is designed to, um, to encourage young people to get involved. And, and as you said, Chris, that's, that's about more than clicking a like button or engaging in all the virtue signaling and self-righteousness that we see today out there. It's about actually getting involved, um, not just doing something on social media. Um, and then figuring out how they can take that experience and apply it to something later in their lives, whether it means running for office themselves, um, going to USA jobs and looking for a a position in in civil service, putting on a military uniform and serving the country in that way, um, or even doing something else in the community, uh, whether it's, it's volunteer work or, um, you know, I I consider serving on a a board of education, practically volunteer work is it's, it's paid virtually nothing. Um, yeah, and there's only downside risk to your opinion of people's opinion of yourself in the community. <laughs> yeah, from, from people who find a bunch of um, not happy folks at their front step with um, torches and pitchforks and that kind of thing. <laughs> Almost literally these days. Right. <laughs> trying to yeah. do the right thing on behalf of kids. Um, so that's what we're trying to do with that program. And democracy or representative government has got to be um, nurtured and passed from generation to generation. This is not add water and stir and it just automatically happens. And it's, I'll offer another thing that I try to disabuse people of as well, because I think a, a lot of times we see, um, you know, whether it's House of Cards here recently, mm. fairly recently on Netflix, or the example that I used to use um, was West Wing. When I was down here in DC the first time in the early 2000s, West Wing was this, you know, popular weekly television show. Um, and so I, I would call it the West wingization of politics where, you know, it's this really idealistic version of what happens and none of the hard work is involved. And it's just good guys versus bad guys, add water and stir. And suddenly I'm the president of the United States and it's not how (laughs) it works. It's, you know, we knocked on 20,000 doors. And we counted literally, not all these bloated numbers you see from a lot of people out there. Oh, I knocked on 100,000 doors this cycle. No, you didn't. It's not physically possible. Yeah, because you know what 20,000 looks like. <laughs> <laughs> it took months, months, months to do that. But, you know, we knocked on 20,000 that cycle and 30,000 the next cycle. And it takes hard work to do. And that's, people want to look at this line of work and romanticize it and turn it into something that it isn't. And it's like any other line of work. Um, you've got to go in every day and just put in the effort. So, you know, if, (laughs) whether it's weightlifting or building automobiles or earning a doctorate, no matter what it is, it's just a day-to-day grind. It's the time to make the donuts commercial from when we were kids back. (laughs) Yeah. Time to make the donuts. Yeah. That's the nature of it. We got to put a link to that in the show notes. Absolutely. (laughs) So, hey, well, I want to talk to you about this, Mike. So there seems to be there's kind of this, at least in the discourse that I'm engaged with, with people out out in the world. There's this idea of everything is so jacked up. We got to burn it down to the ground and start over. All right. And then that's so that's one side. On the other side, there's this idea of 
this has been an imperfect conversation, right? We started off with spoilage and we got some governance and then that kind of fails. We still have a little bit of that cronyism where we can do appointees to our friends who helped us get elected. I mean, right. So at this idea of an evolving conversation of government that needs to be made better as we go on versus certain people that, you know, want viva la revolution and and rip it all down. So so if somebody's coming in, right? And they, I mean, I get it. You read some of the philosophy and you're like, yes, yes. But it's not that easy. Even if you wanted to burn it all down, there's, all, you know, they call them the swamp, right? They, you know, there's 2 million people that have expertise on a whole host of uh, things like from environmental regulations to maternity policy. Maybe riff on that a little bit. What, what do you think about those? For the people that want to burn it all down, what do you think is a good argument against that or for it? So let's start at the beginning with our one of our charter documents, the, the preamble to the Constitution, which refers to a more perfect union. Right. We will never find perfection in this life. Um, anyone who's married knows that. Anyone who's had to engage with um, one other person in an employment situation, never mind hundreds or thousands or millions of people, we're never going to have that. And the structure that's in place in this country for governing what continues to be a, a growing and more diversified population, which is certainly what we are today compared to where we were 200 plus years ago, is going to be a messy process. It's messy by design. It's not supposed to be neat and it's not supposed to be efficient. I, I remind people that if you want an efficient form of government that gets everything done quickly, you can have that, but you're not going to enjoy the experience. <laughs> well, yeah, like in China. They can do these long-term economic thrusts that may be unpopular, but they don't have to put that are strategically beneficial. They don't have to put it up to a vote. It's like, congratulations, Jack Wagons. This is where we're going. (laughs) (laughs) And that's your one choice. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah. (laughs) So this is a lot messier, but it gives us an opportunity as individual people to have engagement and one of the books that I read a couple of years ago that came out by um, a sitting United States Senator, Ben Sass, um, who's a, a Nebraska. PhD historian by training, was president of a university for a while. So he, he's operated in the ed space before public service. Um, his book is called The Vanishing American Adult, um, which is a great thing that you may want to link as well as, as a resource. Um, but he points out in there something that used to be obvious to all of us in the country um, before <laughs> this generation of people were around. And that is that we we're all sovereign under the, the system that's created, right? The, the sovereign in other forms of government would be um, a monarch or right. um, a dictator or a czar. And in this country and under this system, which is now a model for so many countries around the world, this form of, of representative democracy prescribes that each voter, each citizen is a sovereign. So that statement goes with responsibility that then flows from it as well. It's not just a set of rights that we receive. It's a set of responsibilities that, that imply engagement by everyone. Um, so whether that's something as simple as going out and actually, um, casting a ballot, as I hope folks will be doing here in the next few weeks, or putting your name on a ballot, or um, engaging the political or public service process in some other way, 
it's not a spectator sport. And if we get back to the roots of, of what a compulsory mass public education system even looks like in this country, the, the point wasn't common core and um, excessive high stakes testing or huh, right. M or whatever it is, or, or everyone goes on to an undergraduate degree or job preparation or all these ancillary things that now seem to be the reason that we educate young people. That was never the point of compulsory education in this country since the late 1800s. The point was training up future sovereigns to run the country. And we don't love it. focus love on it. that anymore. We're so focused on all this other stuff that we've come up with over the last 50 or 60 years that is supposedly important that's completely distracted us from what we're doing. And that is, is really the object of the Emerging Servant Leaders Program at Grindstone is to peel away all that and say, no, the focus of, of primary and secondary education is to prepare people to be responsible adults and thoughtful leaders, irrespective of what they happen to do in their lives. Yeah. That's what education yeah. is for. Yeah. yeah. You, and, you know, what? I, one thing I just wanted to underscore here, and I think it's kind of a theme that you've been drawing upon here, Mike, is the the role of intentionality and responsibility. And, and I think, you know, there can be an assumption, for example, that, you know, good marriages, good relationships just kind of happen. Good organizations just kind of happen. Good governments just kind of happen. But that is baloney, right? Uh what we know from social science research from decades and centuries of experience is that, no, you have to be intentional about these things. If you want a good marriage, a good relationship, you better get up ready to work on it every single day. If you want a great organization, same thing, got to work on it. If you want a great country, then we need to have people who are willing and ready and informed and, and able to get into the, the arena and actually do that. So, uh, you know, just to underscore the importance, and th I think, of what you're trying to do here and, and some of these ideas. Yeah, and I want to add something else. There are some structural issues that prevent people from getting some of those pieces of civics education. Sure. And 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 it, you know, if if somebody's seeking to disenfranchise or prevent somebody from getting to the polls or not providing good access to voting, that's horrible. You want we need more cylinders firing on the problems that we face as a country not less. And so, and, and that doesn't even have to be a racial issue necessarily. When you look at the people who are voting, the older generations are so much more of a percentage of the vote than the young people are. And yet the young people are the jack wagon saying, Gah! you know, and so, and so like this, and so it doesn't matter, you know, gender, ethnicity, all of that stuff. We need all cylinders firing on voting. And that's as, as, and, and Mike, you had this on your LinkedIn post. I added my own thoughts and reposted it. Um, yeah. Tell them a little bit about the voting scenario when you were uh, deployed. Yeah. My last deployment, which I think was in a more dangerous place than Washington. It's hard to tell these days, but I was in, <laughs> I was in Baghdad, Iraq back in yeah. uh, 07, 08. Uh, which happened to cross over a municipal election at the end of 07. And so going through the regular process for um, military and overseas voting, I requested my absentee ballot and it never arrived in Baghdad. And that's not an uncommon scenario for deployed military personnel, whether on a ship at sea or, um, uh, or being a dirt sailor like I was in the middle of the desert. Um, and so 
I sort of made a vow at that point that if I ever got into a position where um, I could correct that process, whatever part of the policy had gone sideways and in, in not allowing that ballot to arrive, that I would do that. And as it turns out, only a couple of years later, I ended up being elected to the House in Ohio. And one of the first bills that I dropped was a piece of legislation to streamline the process for uh, for uniform and overseas military voting. Um, so what we did in Ohio was allow for an electronic request for the ballot, um, again, only for, for um, overseas citizens and deployed military personnel. You still have to do it by paper if you're um, here in the U.S. And then you still have to return your paper ballot. But it eliminated at least one half of the potential for something getting lost in the mail. Yeah, this is beautiful. This is a problem. So this is a case where somebody, Mike didn't go, this whole country is corrupt and broken. This is where I'm I'm moving to Canada or wherever, right? He said, wait a minute, somebody over, I mean, there's a lot of balls to juggle as a government. Here's one that's getting dropped. Let me go, you know, see something, say something, see something, do something is what Mike did. And, and we can have these small things. And in aggregate, they step, you know, they stack up if we'll just step up to the plate as citizens and and do them. So so let's let's move over to. Well, well first of all, yeah, before we uh, move on, I, I want to make sure that we uh, uh, get Mike to talk a little bit about his experience and what what's going on with the USS Cleveland Legacy Foundation. So I mentioned at the beginning that he's the president and executive director of that organization. And I happen to be a part of that organization, too. And it's just a really awesome thing that we're trying to do. Uh, here in Northeast Ohio. So maybe just take a, a minute and tell our lis listeners a little bit about that because we do have a lot of listeners from Ohio and regardless of where you are, you're, you're going to find this interesting. I think. And yeah. start off with what the USS Cleveland even is. I'll, I'll, I, uh, yeah. I will get there immediately after this this final. I wanted to wrap up one piece on, sure. on the last item that, that Chris noted and that's, I think, the importance of incrementalism in, in public policy making, whether at the legislative level or um, at the regulatory level. So many times I think people want to get everything done all at once, you know, pass the big monumental piece of legislation, the, the Social Security Act or, um, you know, what's now known as Obamacare. And, and, and those are exceptions to the rule where we get major transformative public policy done in one fell swoop. Decades in the making, though. We're doing things, in my opinion. Right. Um, it, it often requires a, a supermajority to get things done. Um, or jamming thing, things down people's throat that they don't want, that there is not um, a public, a clear public mandate or majority for. And so a lot of what we've done over the years that's been successful is the, the incremental reform process, whether it's in um, the voting piece that we were just talking about or civil service reform. And, and that's how we improve an area of public policy, and that's how we improve the country. So it doesn't mean burning the entire thing down most of the time. It means taking the little steps that are going to improve um, what an area of policy happens to look like. So I just I wanted to make that um, additional observation before we move on. Yeah, no, let's let me hop on that one real quick. And I don't care if this episode goes long because it's so flipping good. So that one of the critiques of the incrementalist approach is it's easy. I mean, what was it? Was it Bill Buckley that said a conservative is a person who stands abreast history and says no or Swap. slow down, stop? Yeah. <laughs> and, 
an incrementalist, uh, one criticism of incrementalism is that it's very easy for somebody in the status quo to just shut down any kind of conversation moving forward. Like that's one criticism of the, you know, people talk about third wave uh, conservatism or uh, third way grouping. And, and they say, well, there's just like lack of, that's not really a new way. It's not necessarily improving. It lacks some imagination, but it's so easy in an incrementalist approach for the majority or status quo to stop maybe needful changes that would come out of a minority opinion. I mean, I see this in big corporations all the time. They need to evolve. And like, you know, Fortune 500, most of those guys there weren't there 15, 20 years ago. Um, so what, what would you say to somebody that would bring that critique as, as why you still think incrementalism is important? One of the things that occurs to me as you're you're talking through that is the filibuster here in the United States Senate. And there's some discussion now about whether to get rid of that and um, the so-called nuclear option, which has has moved us from a supermajority for moving something off the floor, um, 60 votes for what's called mm-hmm. culture, to uh, to 50 votes. You know, th- these processes were put in place and they're not only um, part of the tradition of the institution. But they're fail-safes that prevent the majority from engaging in tyranny that just steamrolls the minority, right? So there, there are reasons why we have these structures that are in place that allow for checks and balances and that, that end up putting us in a place where an incremental approach is typically the only way that we're able to get anything done. Mm. So that's, it's the way the system's designed. And again, it gets back to making sure that minority rights are protected while still recognizing the power and the influence of majoritarian politics in a country that's designed the way that ours is. Yeah. Well, I think understanding why things are in place before changing them is also very important. And it kind of speaks to this idea that sometimes is referred to as Chesterton's fence, if you've ever heard of Chesterton's fence. So um, G.K. Chesterton in uh, his 1929 book, The Thing, he uh, talks about this idea, and I, I quote, he says, In the matter of reforming things as distinct from deforming them, there is one plain and simple principle, a principle which will probably be called a paradox. There exists in such a case a certain institution of law, let us say, or for the the sake of simplicity, a fence or gate erected across a road. The more modern type of reformer goes gaily up to it and says, I don't see the use of this. Let's clear it away. To which the more intelligent type of reformer will do well to answer, if you don't see the use of it, I certainly won't let you clear it away. Go away and think. Then, when you can come back and tell me that you do see the use of it, I may allow you to destroy it, right? So this idea of understanding things in their historical context and uh, having a little bit of thoughtful, of a, a more thoughtful of an approach towards things instead of just burning the system down, I think there is some value in thinking that way. Right, Ben, here's the thing. I had... These are evergreen lessons that have to be refreshed yeah. every generation. And, that, and you know, that's one of the reasons I love scouting in the United States, as they have a civics, you know, merit badge there. Um, they have government merit badge. I forget what they're called now because they changed them, but citizenship in the community, citizenship in the government. Yeah, that, that's yeah. what those merit badges were. I remember them. Every because I'm watching, and we see this in the consulting world. Somebody will come out with some pop book and gets on USA Today. They do all the morning shows. They're like, I've discovered the new paradigm of leadership. <laughs> You're like, no, you didn't, Jack. Well, I go back to the lit- literature, the IO psych, management science literature. It's already there. 
And then I'm seeing a lot of people that these are next generation of talent, people coming up through high school, college, you know, even into their 30s. And, and you're like, man, you are missing out on the earlier part of this conversation. This is lawn that's already been mowed. Like if you're going to start developing a car, you don't need to start at inventing the wheel. The wheel's already been invented. You need to yeah. roll on to the next stage of development. Or what is it? Was it Bernard de Chartres, you know, standing on the shoulder of giants? At least start your part of the conversation where the smart guys left off. I think there's, there's two sort of versions of it. One is, I saw this in fraternity advising over the years, especially. It just reminds me of that, given there's constant turnover every four right. years, say, at the chapter level. The we've always done it this way um, approach, or I've got a brilliant new idea. <laughs> you know, tend not to work out quite the way people think they will when they uh, when they come up with that. <laughs> That's right. The good idea fairies, they exist everywhere, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. But we always say, People say, oh, that's a good idea, Ferry. I'm like, wait a minute. You don't want any new good ideas? Oh. oh yeah. Well. I mean, it's a, it's a balance between the two, right? Yeah. There is. There is. Oh, that's good. All right. So USS Cleveland, what yeah. is it? And then tell us about it. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, we name ships in the United States Navy, and it turns out that we are naming a fourth ship in U.S. history for um, the city of Cleveland to honor the city and its people. and um, so when this happens, typically a commissioning committee is set up in a community that um, will throw what, what one of my board members refers to as a one-week kegger, um, <laughs> around <here. laughs> which is only half tongue-in-cheek. Um, but in, in this case, the uh, the type of ship that's being built is a littoral combat ship, and she's being built up in Wisconsin. And so the actual commissioning is going to take place in Cleveland, which will be the first time that this has happened um, for any of the ships called Cleveland over the years. So in, in our typical, we're going to really blow this thing out and make it big Cleveland kind of way. We said, well, we're not just going to do a, a commissioning committee event. Let's create a longer term nonprofit organization. And, and Ben and I and the others on the board found out what this was all about with uh, navigating the IRS to set up a new 5103. Um, but let's create a, a new organization that not only supports the ship, through the commissioning process, but supports the ship and her crew during service life. Um, and then before a piece of steel has even been cut, I think we blew minds at the Pentagon with this idea, um, had the third phase of this, which was to retire the, the future ship back to Cleveland as a museum and a memorial to all of the USS Cleveland's and mm. maybe. So that's kind of the, the short version of what we're doing. This is a 30-plus year project right out of the gate, and I have this really cool opportunity of working with 11 other people on the board um, and being the first staff member for this organization to get us off the ground. Yeah, yeah. It's so exciting, and what we're trying to do, you know, in addition to all of that or along the way, is really help to connect the people of Northeast Ohio with the Navy, with the military, in a way that, uh, you know, is is trickier when you're not in a fleet concentration area, as we call, you know, places like Norfolk or San Diego. So uh, it's very exciting. And I think it's just going to be a fantastic thing for our region. Um, and uh, yeah, excited to be part of it, too. Cool. So why don't we talk a little bit now about some advice, right? So 
if you are thinking you're well, you're like, wow, just listening to Mike Dovella talk about public service, and this seems like challenging, but really important and awesome work and so forth. Um, what is what are some advice that you might have for people if they're you know at various stages of their education or career in getting involved in their communities in public service? So that's a great question, and it's it's probably um, one of the more prevalent questions that I receive in all the different pieces of service that I've been engaged in over the years. So I, I do a lot of mentoring in this space. Um, I think the first thing is just to to get involved, right? So again, back to the West Wing concept we were talking about earlier, where you now everybody thinks they're going to be president right out of the gate. Um, it just it doesn't work that way. You've got to get involved at the lowest possible level, and so step. Now look forward. at Biden. Biden wanted to be president right out of the gate. He, he, he did. <laughs> How many decades later? <laughs> At least in terms of nomination. Yeah. Um, but get involved in a campaign. You know, do the hard work. I still remember experiences from from high school and from college of you know knocking on doors, going outside in the middle of summer on on days like this when it's ninety degrees and ninety percent humidity, and the sun is baking down on you, and you're going to see people at their front doors who probably don't want to let all the cold air from the AC out and don't really want to see you anyway and and explain to them why the candidate that you're supporting who's right here on the street with us just across the way there talking to your neighbor is is worthy of serving in public office see whether or not this is really for you because i think a lot of times people look at this and they see the the again romanticized version of it the trappings of office, the title of an office, the honorable that goes in front of someone's name, and they see that as the the purpose of the entire thing, the end point of all of it. And, right. and my message to people of any age, but especially young people, is if you're not willing to put in the work to knock the doors and raise the money and, heaven forbid, pick up a telephone, which I know is something people don't want to do today because it's a scary device, <laughs> um, you, you've got to interact with people. You, one of the things that I mentioned in my in in the ebook that I shared with you guys earlier is if you don't like people, this probably isn't the right line of work for you. You have to legitimately, genuinely, <laughs> working with other people. Get out of your own way. Stop putting yourself first, and want to serve them. That's what servant leadership looks like. So those are some ingredients right off the bat in terms of the just the makeup of what one has to do to get engaged. And then the other big piece of it is train for it too. Um, like anything else that you want to get good at, you got to put in a little bit of time every day doing it. So you're interested in public service. You're interested in public policy. You better be reading about it every day. You should be engaged in the news, know what's going on in our world. Um, Read some historical books on it. I love biographies and and anything that's that's history related. So these are the kind of things that I just, even at my age, 20, 30 years on from, from the age of the people we're talking about here, continue to consume on a day-to-day basis. So I want to be smart about what I'm trying to do. And the people who you're going to serve want you to be smart about what you're trying to do as well. They don't need another moron in place um, to do the wrong thing just for themselves. Oh, my gosh. Let me ask you about this. Did you watch the Zuckerberg thing when he came up to the hill and and got the you know publicized grilling? 
Um, bits and pieces of it, yeah. Some of some of the questions that came from representatives were so horrible. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. You you take our data and then use that to target us with ads? Yes, Senator. That's that's how our platform works. You know, if I'm Zuckerberg, you can't do this. But like I'm thinking in my mind, you know, guys, I really prepared for this day. And it's obvious you didn't. So I'm gonna leave now. You come back when you have some real questions. Right. I, I mean, we have people, and it I mean, I don't want some of them they should know by now, right? But it you have so many things as a representative that you gotta do. Like that's why if you're gonna go up into being a senator, maybe you should have a look at technology policy and some of those things before you even get in the seat. It can't just be the fundraising and looking good in a suit, right? That's it. it, it and it, part of that's about good staff work as well, which we mentioned earlier, right? It's right. Putting together the set of questions for the boss, doing some of the homework, and then briefing him or her in advance of the hearing to make sure that the member is prepared to go do the work. Because to your point, Chris, they're they're engaging, hopefully not just in fundraising and looking good in a suit, but in, in the actual work of doing the job and they've got so many different things that are coming at them every day. I mean, it's one of the nice things about where I am now with um, being on this mobilization at the moment, but also just back in, in my civilian life, running my own company and doing the work with the USS Cleveland is I get to put together my own schedule generally when you're in office. So from the time I was in the legislature or the chief of staff at OPM, you are literally having your calendar managed in 15 or maybe, if you're lucky, 30-minute increments on an issue before you're getting yanked to a completely different issue. It's hard for the human brain just to get wrapped around. Um, right. Okay, so for this moment, we're talking about this policy. And then 15 minutes later, I'm talking about something that's completely different. And I've got to be educated and knowledgeable and articulate about that. So it's it's challenging. We're all We're all human. And so, but we place these superhuman requirements or expectations on people who serve in these offices, again, as if they're perfect. And they're not. They're just like us. Right. And, and that's, you know, it, it's part of the dichotomy, I think, of, of the American viewpoint on public service, especially for, we'll, we'll use the presidency as an example of this, where we, we simultaneously want the individual who serves in that office to be, um, smarter and and better and more prepared than each of us is as an individual and yet at the same time we want them to um to exhibit and emote and display that they're just like us yeah the beer it test gotta be both yeah yeah, yeah. the guy that you want to sit down and have beer with or not and, and if you go back in history and just in recent history and you you look at our elections who wins the election it's that guy or or the reverse beer test is a new one it's like would this, it's not a, would I want to have a beer with them? Would they want to have a beer with me? Right. Do <laughs> <laughs> you like people? Question. Yeah, if you, if you want to wonk, if you want a real policy wonk that can just sit there and pull out, doesn't need a PowerPoint, can just whiteboard it. He probably has a pocket protector, drools on himself and is not married. <laughs> and there are places for people in government to do that, like poor, just as there are in, in private sector. Yeah. But, but when it comes time to go to war, I doubt that pocket protector drooler is going to be able to get on TV and be like, follow me. Like, it's probably not going to be very inspiring. It's a combination of the two skill sets, right? Yeah. And that's what we want. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, we want people in public service who have the depth, who have the true, you know, pure intentions 
in terms of serving something bigger than themselves and are willing to do the work, you know, and it's not just about the, you know, kind of the West wing romanticized version of things. So um, I think those are, are really good things to remember. Uh, any other pieces of advice that you'd give to people who are, are looking for ways to get into public service? Um, one that I guess sort of grows out of the other two is just be patient. Um, and, and this is hard, especially for, for, any young people who are hard charging and want to get into whatever line of work or industry, you know, they, they want the corner office and the company car and the nice salary right away. And it, it just, you got to put in your, your time doing this. I, I still remember um, to this day receiving um, this really great voicemail from Senator Voinovich the night that I won the election to the house. I've got it on an old SIM card somewhere from a, like, four or five phones ago that I've still saved today. Because <laughs> um, it, you know, it's one of those messages that you just, it's like receiving this approval from a parent or from a person who you really respected over the years. And and the way that he put it in this message was, um, you know, you, you've worked really hard and you've earned your spurs, and which is an old phrase, I guess, but, um, and now you have the opportunity to go serve. And, but this was based on years worth of work that I put in toiling in the vineyard of public service and politics from knocking doors as a 20 year old when I first ran for city council in Berea as a college student that didn't win uh, all the way up to that point of victory and sort of I remember waking up the next morning and and still literally not being able to wrap my mind around the fact that that had happened but that was you know probably gosh, 15 or 20 years worth of work at that point. Yeah. Yeah, and we and we see the junior guys that get elected. And I was young when I got elected. I mean, I was, um, I was 35 that year. Yeah, well, some people don't think that's young. Yeah, <laughs> but if you see junior people, so first of all, that is young, but it, the more junior you are, the less time you've had to do that preparation work. So there, there's kind of a seesaw balance between being young and and fresh with good new ideas and having that preparation and experience that makes you somebody that can be effective, right? Yeah, it's both. One of the things that I've thought about historically is, um, again, I'm a big nerd on the people who've served in, in different positions over the years. You think about um, Teddy Roosevelt, who was vice president, who's 42 when he succeeded to the presidency after President McKinley was assassinated. Um, John Kennedy was 43 upon election. I mean, he died when he was 46. That's like, I'm looking that in the face next March. That's my next <laughs> birthday. I can't imagine being president of the United States right now with this, with the level of seasoning experience, even that, that someone who's put in decades of work in this business has. And yet, you know, those guys did the work. And of course the country's different you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, um, or even 50 or 60 years ago. But there's something to be said for gaining the the expertise over a period of time that that allows you to be effective in the position. Um, the flip side to it, though, and, and this is something I've talked about with with folks recently, is you know do you, do you have to be approaching your 80th birthday to now be a legitimate candidate for the presidency? It's like mm. uh, you know, well, maybe if we live to 200 years old. I'd take a 180-year-old candidate because how much experience <laughs> do you want for the top 
slot. It's true. all of it. You want all of it. <laughs> as much as you can get, right? <laughs> right. And and yet in some ways it feels like um, you know, it's the same thing that maybe all of us have experienced in the military where you get a really top heavy unit or organization where it's like, gosh, will these captains ever retire so we can just, you know, <laughs> get to that point. It's like they, you know, they're post command, they've hung on for a long time and it, they're just holding on for the 30 years that they're, they're able to get. Um, but it, it, it gums up the system when people can't move up. Yeah. Um, and which reminds me of one other thing that we probably ought to just talk briefly about. And that's um, the concept of term limits. Yeah, it, yeah, great. Let's talk journalists. All the time. And it doesn't matter what you post on social media that's related to policy or politics. And it's, we've got to have term limits. That's how we solve these problems. And I found through my experience, it's exactly the opposite. We have term limits in in the state legislature. And they're a bit of a bizarro sort of flavor of term limits where you can move back and forth indefinitely between the two chambers. So it's not legitimately you're you're done but it's eight years in each place and and you have to roll out after that and it doesn't solve anything we we, what we've done is really limit the ability of of our members to have long-term expertise in the first branch of government the people's branch of government the legislature which has created this uber powerful lobbying class and super strong executive branch of of career people who do great work, as we've indicated earlier in this program, but the direction that government's going to go at any point in time is supposed to be based on the direction people want it to go. And that's based on elections. So we really limit ourselves. And I've always referred to it as sort of the, the schizophrenia of the public saying, you know, put term limits in place because we've got to throw the bums out. But what that really implies is we don't know what we're doing as the people who are doing the voting. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, because you can throw the bum out. You must, because we can't help ourselves. Well, right. it's the right way if you don't like the guy or the gal who's not doing what you, you don't want them to do. <laughs> it's called an election. Yeah, yeah. And when it all, it, there's something to be said for having the experience and continuity that actually can help move things forward. Because kind of like you said, otherwise you end up having other branches or other parts of the government or uh, external interests that know things better and it can actually just run bureaucratic circles around you as the, the newly elected, uh, you know, representative or whatever. Sure. One of the questions that I would ask is who do you think knows more about a, a public policy issue, a seasoned lobbyist who has been working an issue for 30 years or a 35 year old freshman legislator? even with considerable experience coming in the door. And that's not to cast any aspersions at the lobbying class. I've done some of that government relations work in my career as well. I always look at people who are sitting in, I never put the desk between me, right? I, I hate meetings that way. So I always sat in a chair, but the person who's sitting in the chair across from me, who is coming in to represent their client or their industry on an issue. I never looked at that person as the adversary or the enemy or some pernicious individual who is there to make me do what I wasn't supposed to do on behalf of the people. A lobbyist is a public policymaker as well in his or her own right. They're there to represent a portion of the citizenry, whether it's um, agriculture or manufacturing or nursing. You, you pick your industry. That's what that person's there for because the thousands of people who actually do that work on a day-to-day basis don't have time to come lobby me as a legislator at the Capitol. So they're doing that as well. They're there as essentially as an extension of, of public service themselves. 
Mm-hmm. It's all part of the process of, of making the system work. But we have to keep in mind what the power balance and the power structure looks like. And you want to have people who are in office who actually have a clue what's going on when they're voting on a you know, $70, $80 billion biennial budget or the components that make it up, just for example. Yeah. Yeah, but didn't, didn't Congress people and senators have money to do their own research at one point? Well, when that kind of cut at some point, I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I mean, the, the entities still exist, but they tend to be pretty Spartan. So right. at the federal level, you have Congressional Research Service, which is an arm, it's an office at the Library of Congress that does excellent work on, on those types of things, but it takes a while to, to do the research. If, if I wanted to, and, and again, that's a terrific place where career civil servants might go to work in their 20s and they'll come up for air like 40 years later and realize, wow, I put an entire career plus in this Doing place, research, working yeah. a really specific issue set and becoming smart on whatever it happens to be. Those people are, are wonderful resources to members and staff, but it also takes a while for them to put together a report on whatever the issue happens to be. Yeah, because if they wanted an accountability office, GAO, as, as um, you know, the, the old general accounting office from years ago, um, renamed in recent years because of one of our bills, by the way, Senator Voinovich, um, another great resource for members to make sure we have transparency and accountability going on in government. But these things take a long time, and, and the process is moving much more quickly as a bill goes through or as a budget moves through during a given cycle. Yeah, if you wanted to balance the power thing between lobbyists, lobbyists who are in the weeds every day, they represent whole industry partners who are funding research that might be biased for their fiscal advantage, maybe. You would have to go fund, for every industry and issue, a whole other research arm that can compete, which is probably unlikely. Yep. Mm-hmm. And and so, but you got to be aware of those things. And and this is just, I think, a great example of the best imperfection that we can have as we try to organize as humans, right? That's exactly it. It's um, it's an imperfect business for imperfect people, but it's the best that we can do. Awesome. Well, you know, it's been just an honor having the Honorable Michael Davila here on the podcast today. Thanks again so much. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, gents. Hey, Mike, do you want to wrap up? Anything you want to say um, to wrap up? I guess the, the, my last point is just, it's a point that I think we've made several times already, and that's just an encouragement to people to, um, to be of good cheer and to be optimistic and forward-looking and, and positive about the process we've described here and about the country. Um, no one wants to listen to a negative, cynical uh, person who has just a, a dark viewpoint on all this. That, again, this is the best that we're going to be able to do as uh, a construct for governing ourselves. So be encouraged, get involved, and um, and try to improve the system that we have through whatever engagement you can. Awesome. Awesome. Thanks, Mike. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thanks for listening to the Indigo Podcast. If you like this podcast, please consider helping us by rating us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, telling your friends about us, having us on your podcast, or mentioning us on social media. Our website is www.indigopodcast.com. 
where you can access more information about us and this episode. Thanks again, and we look forward to talking with you again soon.